So as we continue our study in 1 Peter, you need to understand a little bit of the time period, the background, to kind of really understand what Peter's talking about. So bear with me a moment. Many of the recipients, receivers of Peter's letter were enduring painful and unjust beatings as slaves. Uh, you, you know, the Roman Empire was just filled with millions and millions and millions of slaves. And the, the masters of these slaves might have done things terrible to them. For example, they may have deprived them of food. Uh, they may have forced them to work long, long, long hours from you know, dawn till dusk, maybe even longer, I don't know. Uh, many of them were punished unfairly, maybe even having done good. <laughs> Peter alludes to that. Even having done good things still may have suffered unjust punishment. So unlike modern our modern day employees in, in you know in the Western countries in particular, those slaves had no one to turn to for help. You know, they, they couldn't walk down to the street to the local courts or find some magistrate or someone to help them out. There was there was no union representative for them to go to for the Roman Empire slaves, right? <laughs> no one to represent them. There was no judge for them to go to. There was no way for them to even file a lawsuit against their master. They just had to endure whatever the circumstances their master imposed on them. That was the time period of Peter's recipients. This is what Peter's audience is dealing with. And so Peter knows that, of course, and he writes appropriately to help them. So in light of that background, let's dive into 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that, when, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. These are the words of the living God, and still appropriate for us even today. So Peter's going to help us out how to relate, particularly in the workplace. So 
you may not be a literal slave, but many people today, even in Western society, have masters. So, and even if you don't have a master, you could be a master. So, and certainly, we, we know people who are in this servant category, and so I hope you'll pay attention to Peter's words here and, and take them to heart to know at least maybe you can help other people with this. So Peter starts off again here, giving us the command. One command here in the text, you find in verse 18, Peter says this, servants, be subject. Same word, by the way, that he used in the previous passage when in verse 13 when he was saying, be subject to every human institution. The idea is here is you're ranking yourself under a leader. And so the command is to be subject. And it's interesting in the New KJV and the New American Standard Bible, it says be submissive. And Bible dictionaries, by the way, have, have this to say about it. It just means to submit to the orders or the directors, directives of someone else. Literally, to obey. You say, well, how often, uh, if, if I am in this employee-servant category, well, how often? Well, it's interesting in Hebrew, or sorry, in Greek, it's in present tense, which just means it's telling us to be subject all the time, to be submissive all the time, continuously do this. The passive voice here tells us that the subject is being acted upon. Literally, it means this, allow yourself to submit. In other words, as we said in the previous passage, this is an attitude which will lead to the action. See, if you don't get the attitude right, you, you don't have that foundation there behind what you do. You've got to get that attitude right. Otherwise, you can, you can be performing on the outside in external actions where your heart is not where it should be. God cares about your heart, not just your external actions. So he's saying be subject, be submissive. And, and who is this applied to? Well, the command is obeyed by servants. You'll notice verse 18 starts with the word servant. Now, most of these servants, by the way, there's various kinds of slaves and servants within the Roman Empire. Most of these servants here were the kind that served in the home or would serve within the estate uh, working with the master, doing job, various jobs. I mean, it could be jobs like plowing fields. Uh, some of them would be harvesting the fields. Some of them would be even uh, the, like the family doctor. Uh, so they would be within the home. They would and, and it would be serving the, the the family or the estate in in various ways. And so the workforce in the Roman world consisted of some have said up to sixty million slaves. And the way they were treated was was wide-ranging. So it all depended on what was the master like. Some masters loved their slaves, and some of those masters would treat the servants like family. They lived in the home and treated them such. And many, of course, did not, which is why Peter's addressing this here. So many didn't because there's virtually no rights for a slave. Slaves owned little, or well, they owned little or practically nothing. 
They had no legal recourse to which they could appeal when they were mistreated. So Peter just says, obey, obey, submit, be subject. To who? Notice the command is obeyed to the masters. See, slaves were to be continually submissive to their masters. The Greek word for masters there uh, looks very similar to an English word. We have this English word called despots. <laughs> it's a terrible word, isn't it? Uh, we have examples all over the news. I, mean, the, I would call the president of Syria a despot. When, when you start dropping chemical weapons on your own people, that puts you in the category of a despot. It's terrible. What Some of the stuff we see happening in our world. And it's interesting that, that our English word despot comes from this Greek word here for master. And so these masters, the point is, they had absolute ownership of and complete control over their slaves. They could tell them to do whatever they wanted. Treat them however they wanted. Also notice what the text says, that the command here is obeyed by doing something. And it says in the text here, by showing respect. How, how are we to be subject? How are we to submit to masters? Well, by showing respect. Re respect there means that this kind of submission is done without bitterness. Uh, there's no negativity. So again, it, it goes to the very heart. As Jesus over and over did, did, didn't he? He was continually driving us to the heart behind the action. And so that's what the text is telling us here. As you submit, do it without bitterness, without negativity, have an attitude of honor to your employer. Do it by showing respect. Does that mean I'm supposed to do this if uh, to, to only to the good masters? Or do I also have to submit to unjust masters? Well, Peter addressed that too. And notice he says, yes, it includes unjust masters. Because he says in verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So submission is to extend beyond the ones you like, to the, to the good, to the gentle masters, but even to the unjust. Now the word good in your text means a master or an employee who is upright, he's beneficial, he's one who is satisfactory for another's needs. In other words, he's, he's paying you a, a good amount, he's giving you benefits, he's looking after your needs, he's, he's not putting you in an unsafe environment, or whatever that might look like. And, and the word gentle refers to a master who is considerate, he's reasonable and fair. Therefore, you kind of combine those ideas together of good and, and gentle. This master is a kind and gracious person. He's the kind of master to whom it's easy to submit. However, there are masters to whom it's very hard to submit. <laughs> Maybe some of you are thinking of some right now. Various employments that you've been in, you probably know of some employers who are very difficult. Right? They were unjust to you. 
didn't pay you enough. They, 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 were, they were mean, unkind, so forth, right? Unreasonable. All right? Peter's addressing these kind here. These are masters to whom it's very hard to submit. But nevertheless, Peter calls these, these masters or employers unjust. Interesting word, by the way. Sounds like an English word. Just bear with me. Here, here's the Greek word. It is scolius. I probably didn't say that right. But anyway, it just means curved or crooked. We get the English word scoliosis. The curvature of your spine. And so the, the, the word is, of course, translated into medical language describing that, uh, that terrible condition of of a spine, uh, your, your spinal cord, the, the vertebrae of it is just twisted condition. And so you say, well, what's the point of this? Well, in the workplace, employees are to submit to employers as if they were serving Jesus Christ himself. Such submissiveness, by the way, stop, would, would have stopped all rebellions. It would stop protests, mutinies. There wouldn't be any strikes wouldn't be disobedience of any kind if the employer is even, I should say, even if the employer is unjust or unreasonable. And so you say, well, man, that's that's a tough command. I'm supposed to be subject or submit even if if my employer is unjust or unreasonable? Yeah, that's hard. Man, I... What's the proper motive for this? Well, that's where Peter gives us verses 19 through 21. And interestingly enough, notice verse 19 and, and 21 are kind of like bookends around uh, this information here. It starts with the word gracious, for this is a gracious thing, and then it also ends with the word grace in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffer for you leaving examples. So, oh, sorry, that's not what I wanted. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, sorry, verse 20, it says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He repeats this idea of, of grace. And so the, the proper motive, you say, what, what, the motivation for believers' submission is, is found in that phrase, therefore this is a gracious thing. And here's the point, my friend, that God is pleased when a believer does their work in a submissive way for the glory of God. Not to be a man pleaser, as Colossians talks about, not just to, uh, you know, get a raise or, uh, you know, climb the corporate ladder or whatever, you know, our motivations might be. But no, God's pleased when a Christian is doing their work in this submissive way for their superiors. <clears throat> in other words, the proper motive is this, to please God. Right? That's why we do everything, to glorify God. Now please notice here, the text says, it's especially favorable to God when a believer suffers unjustly. This is the, the time your glory to God is rising and shining. Because Peter says here, verse 19, 
that when one endures sorrows while suffering, he talks about them suffering unjustly, he says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Rhetorical question. Right? In other words, Peter's saying, you're just getting what you deserve. You know, if the boss beats you and he's unkind to you and he he demotes you or, or fires you or whatever it might be, because you've sinned, that's just what you deserve. Don't go cry foul. <laughs> However, but if when, he says, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's the opportunity, the, the greatest opportunity you have to please God. So God wants believers when suffering unjustly in the workplace, uh, not to weaken in their witness, but to humbly and patiently accept that unjust treatment. You say, well, how can anybody do that? That's hard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and the answer is, found in your text, helpfully, that you need to believe that God has sovereign control over every circumstance in your life and He promises to bless you. Now, here's part of the problem. We, we, we want the blessing right now. But God doesn't promise you the blessing right now. Just because you do the right thing now doesn't mean you're going to be blessed now. But ultimately you will. And, and Peter's going to give us the, the ultimate example here of submission it, we find the ultimate example in Jesus Christ. So let's look at what Peter says. And what we're going to see Jesus Christ submitting under terrible circumstances, receiving unjust treatment, but yet he submits and he is believing in a sovereign God who reigns supreme over all of his creation. But nevertheless, through it all, he's trusting in God. He knows that blessing is to come. So let's look at the ultimate example here of submission in Jesus, starting in verse 21. We see that Christ, first of all, suffered for you. He suffered for you. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Praise God, we have a, a good example of submission. So Christ's redemptive suffering, by the way, for when, when, when he died for sin, uh, that is not the example that you can follow, okay? Please understand, Jesus is the God-man. He did what you and I could not do. And so Christ's redemptive suffering for sin has no parallel in his followers' sufferings. But there are features of Jesus' suffering that do provide an example for us to follow. So bear with me. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, you could never die on the cross for your sin. You could never pay the penalty for your sin. You, you can't follow Jesus' example in that way. So what is Peter talking about here when Jesus is our example? What is it about Jesus' example that we, we can learn from and, and, and follow? Well, we'll talk about that. So to, to expand on this idea, I'll give you an, an example. Christ's execution was a complete breach of justice. He was the one who was sinless, who was even declared by the Roman authorities 
to be innocent. Nevertheless, he was crucified. His execution demonstrated that uh, one can be absolutely faithful to God's will and still experience unjust suffering. So he was not executed because he was a criminal, but the exact opposite. So Christ's attitude in his death here provides believers with the ultimate example of how to respond to undeserved persecution. So let's see what Jesus did here. Well, number two, we see that Christ left an example for you to follow. That's what the text says in 20, verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. So believers will never suffer for others' salvation. You can't do that. But they will suffer for Christ's sake, and His example is the standard for a God-honoring response. And it's interesting in that text there, the word example literally means writing under. Writing under. It referred to a pattern that would be placed under a sheet of tracing paper so that the original images would be duplicated on the, on the next page. Maybe some of you even did that in school. I, I know I used to do that. You'd have a, you'd have a piece of paper and a, you'd have your, your, ink page and then you as you write on the top page it would go into the next page that's where this idea is coming from and so in ancient times children would learn to write by tracing over letters and here's the point my friend that christ is the example he is the pattern that we're to trace he is the one on which believers trace their lives and and in so doing by the way Notice the text says you're actually following in Christ's steps. So for believers, the steps through this world are often on paths of unjust suffering. I wish I had better news for you, but that's what it often happens. And so Peter says there in verse 21, he's leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. Well, where did Christ's steps take him? It took him to a cross. Through much tribulation, Jesus says, uh, we, we must go. So he left an example for you to follow. But number three, Christ, how did he respond to this unjust suffering? Well, he didn't retaliate. He did not get revenge. He could have, but he didn't. Because look at verse 23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten anybody but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So he was reviled. That just means, by the way, someone's using abusive language over and over again. They're just piling on the abuse, just burying you with their words. It described an extremely harsh kind of verbal abuse. What was Jesus' response under all of this verbal abuse? He patiently bore it. He humbly bore it. Accepted that abuse. He did not return the abuse back. And that's amazing when you think about that. The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, being abused by the ones whom He created. And so as the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, Jesus 
could have just blasted his enemies into eternal fire. With just one word from his mouth, the, the creator of the universe who made all the stars and the planets and everything in the universe by speaking them into existence could have spoken these men out of existence. But he endured with no retaliation. Why? Well, one of the purposes we see here is he wanted to set an example for us. How did he do this? How did he not retaliate and get revenge when he could have? Well, again, notice verse 23, that we see that Christ trusted a sovereign God. He trusted a sovereign God. The end of verse 23 says that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Man, that's, that's our only hope, by the way, too. When you are suffering unjustly, what else are you going to hold on to? Jesus' strength came from his complete trust in his Father. He knew that this unjust treatment, even though he didn't deserve it, was the Father's will for him. And so the word there, entrusting, just means to commit. You're handing it over. You're, you're relinquishing, releasing control. That's, that's our problem, isn't it? We, we worship control too much. That is one of the deep idols of our heart. We worship control. It freaks us out when we lose control. But that's what you do when you, you're entrusting your very life, everything about you, over to somebody else. You are handing it over. You are committing yourself to someone else. That's what Jesus did. You say, what's the point here? Well, with each new wave of abuse, Jesus was always handing himself over to God. He recognized that God loved him, had a purpose for what was happening to him. What was supporting Jesus' acceptance of suffering was this unshakable confidence in a divine plan, a perfect plan. He knew God judges righteously. It says so here. And so Jesus believed the Father would vindicate him according to his holy justice. Yeah, it, it didn't come at the cross, but Jesus knew it would someday. And so my friend, there's your example. The perfect example, the perfect model, the, the perfect one whom we should be tracing, just like a child traces letters and numbers on a paper. But Peter moves on. He's to talk about Jesus. He describes him also as a shepherd. So not only is Jesus our example, but he is a shepherd and, and we are the sheep and we must look to him for everything as a sheep does to a shepherd. Notice what Peter says about the shepherd here in verse 24. We see, first of all, that Christ bore your sins. He bore your sins. Peter's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53, by the way, here in this text. He says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, what does that mean? Bore means to carry the massive weight of sin. Everything that comes with sin, it's, it's guilt, it's penalty, and, and so forth. And so the weight of sin is so heavy that the book of Romans says even the whole creation 
is groaning and suffering under this weight of sin. So as you look at your animals, as you look at your plants in your garden, (laughs) as you look in the mirror, you ought to be thinking, Romans chapter 8, I'm groaning, my animals are groaning, my plants in my garden are all groaning. They're waiting for this day of redemption when the curse of sin is going to be removed. See, only Jesus could remove this massive weight. See, if you died on a cross, it, did, it doesn't deal with the penalty of sin. You say, well, how did Jesus do this? He suffered the penalty for sin. And so in receiving the wrath of God against sin, guess what Christ did? He endured not only death itself, worse yet, He endured separation from the Father for this time period. And that's why when He's on the cross, He cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer to that. And so Christ took the full punishment for your sin thus satisfying divine justice and freeing God then to forgive all those who repent and believe in Jesus. So that's what it means when Christ bore your sins. He literally took your place on that cross. He did for you what you could never do for yourself. But it gets even better. Look at verse 24, because it says that Christ, when He died, what did He accomplish in that? He he died so believers might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, you need to grasp this amazing truth. This is awesome. See, union with Christ does more than just change a believer's standing before God. See, you have a You have a positional sanctification when you're justified. You have this new standing. You go from being a sinner to a saint. But it gets even better than that. See, God also changes your very nature, not just your standing, not just your position. In other words, what I'm saying is a Christian is justified and sanctified. You are are set apart from sin unto God. So God transformed believers from sinners to saints. That's who you are as a Christian. You are a saint. See, saints aren't fat little babies with wings sitting on clouds playing harps or however you want to to view them. You don't have to die first in order to become a saint. See, if you're a Christian, you are now a saint. That's your position in Christ. And, And the phrase there in your text, verse 24, might die. Now that might sound to you like this is something... That is uncertain to you. In reality, it means that Christ died for believers to separate them from sin's penalty so it can never condemn you. You cannot be condemned. And that's why Romans 8, 1 is so beautiful because in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. See, if you have this union with Christ, you cannot be condemned by sin or by Satan. So the record of of their sins was nailed to the cross. Jesus paid their debt to God in full. Well, hold on, it gets even better here. Because we see here, it's because of Christ's work that a believer's also delivered, not just from the the this condition, this curse, the guilt, but a believer's also delivered from the power of sin. 
That's Romans 6 and 7. You're now made able to live righteousness. You're, you're able to live right. You are able to please God. In other words, you don't have to sin. You don't have to. We, we might feel that way sometimes because we still have the, the, the lingering of sin in us. But Romans 6 and 7 says you don't have to sin. Jesus also broke the power of sin. You now have a new master. You don't have, you, you, sorry, you have the ability to do what's right. And the reason you have that ability is because of Jesus. He gives you the power to please Him. So we see with this beautiful, good shepherd here that Christ bore your sins. Christ died so that believers might die to sin and live to righteousness. But verse 24 also tells us that Christ healed you. What does that mean? Because I've had discussions with with, uh, people who claim to be a Christian and they think this healing is something that happens here and now. It's it's to them it's it's a physical healing and they they want to claim this as some promise from God that that I'm not going to get cancer or whatever. So what what is this all about? Well, it's helpful if you go back to the context from Isaiah chapter 53. But but notice the text says, "How are you healed?" It it, it says, "By Christ's wounds." The wounds, by the way, there is just a, a general reference to the sufferings of Christ. You say, well, what kind of healing is this? Is, is this some kind of a healing where, where I'm going to have a physical healing? Is this the health, wealth, prosperity gospel here? Well, the healing is spiritual. So again, go back to the context of Isaiah 53. That is a spiritual healing. It's not some promise for physical healing. Believers, of course... <laughs> If you're a believer, you know, you, you still get sick. We, we get diseases. Eventually we die. So sadly, though, the prosperity gospel has taken texts like this one and misinterpreted it to mean something it was never intended to mean. The good news, the good news sorry, is uh, in heaven, though, you're also going to receive physical healing. You have a new body. In in heaven, believers will experience no sickness, no pain, no suffering, and no death. And that's the beauty of Revelation 21. I'll put it on the screen here for you. This is the new heaven that the Apostle John saw. Notice what he says about the new heaven and the new earth. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So my friend, that is future. Future. That's coming. 
But for now, the promise is a spiritual healing, which, by the way, is far more important than any physical healing. Even Jesus said, what does it profit a man? You can gain the whole world. You, you lose your soul. What does it profit you? Well, nothing. And so we also learn from verse 25 here that Christ retrieves straying sheep. He loves his sheep. And he's willing to go after them. Because look what it says about Christ, verse 25. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The phrase straying like sheep is describing this dangerous and helpless wandering of lost sinners, just like sheep tend to do. I think I've told this story before. One time when I was on some farmer's way on the back end of his farm one day, I was actually hunting turkeys and trying to find turkeys, but anyway, I came across a sheep that had his head stuck in a gate. I have no idea how long that sheep was there for, but they, that sheep had, if it wasn't for me, it'd probably be still there and be just a bunch of skeleton. That sheep couldn't get his head out of the gate, typically like sheep do, probably thinking the grass is greener on the other side of the gate, sticks his head through there somehow, but he couldn't get it back out. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to leave this dumb sheep here. And, then, and, and I was looking at the sheep thinking, man, I'm just, boy, I'm just like it. God described me like a sheep, a wandering sheep, thinking things are better somewhere else. <laughs> but it, it, it could have killed the sheep. So all I had to do is I opened up the boards of the gate, let the sheep go back into its paddock, probably saved its life. But it's interesting that Peter here is alluding to Isaiah 53, particularly verse 6. Again, on the screen here for you. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, God describes us like sheep. We, we have this tendency to go astray, to wander. Turn it everyone to his own way. So, if God had not determined that all believers' sins should fall on Jesus, there would be no shepherd to bring God's flock then into the fold. What hope would there be? How does a lost sheep return to the shepherd? It's interesting here. The verb, have returned in your text, is carrying this connotation of repentance. That's how a sheep, you and me, returns to the Good Shepherd. In other words, there has to be a turning from our sin to Jesus. Well, praise God, Peter's readers had trusted in Christ for salvation. And so the question is, have we done the same? Have we done the same? And so if you are saved, then you come under now the perfect care of the Good Shepherd. Because notice what verse 25 says. We see here that Christ oversees your soul. Wow. The creator of the universe is also the sustainer. See, shepherd there in verse 25 is kind of equivalent to the word overseer as well. Uh, same word, by the way, used for pastors. Pastors sometimes called overseers in the Bible. 
there's kind of a similar concept there. The idea is a shepherd is is a is referring to Christ, just conveys his role as one who feeds the sheep. He's the leader of the sheep. He's the one who protects the sheep from uh, outside influence that might hurt the sheep. He's also the cleanser of the sheep. He's the restorer of his flock. He's the one who leads them to the quiet waters so they can drink and be satisfied. And believers as sheep is also a very apt analogy here for us because what are sheep like? As Isaiah 53 describes them, sheep are very stupid. We're stupid. Okay, I'm stupid. We're dirty. We're defenseless. We, we need help. We, we cannot exist just in and of ourselves. A sheep is hopeless without the shepherd looking after them. And so fortunately, we do have a good shepherd. And Jesus described himself as the good shepherd in John chapter 10, here verse 11, which says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He knows his sheep. And sheep hear his voice, and and they're following him. David understood this in in the Psalm 23. David's writing from a shepherd's perspective. He looked after sheep. He knew what sheep were like, and he, he understood this analogy. And so in Psalm 23, verse 1, David says, The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh, Jehovah, is my shepherd. I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? David says, For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Oh, so much could be said about that. But the important point is we have a shepherd. If you're a believer today, you have a shepherd. Yahweh, Jehovah, God is your shepherd. And the truth is, David says, because of that, you shall not want. You shall not want. So my friend, by Christ's death and His resurrection... He has become the shepherd and overseer of your eternal soul. You have one who is there watching over your very soul. That very part of you that lives forever. is Even that part of you is being taken care of even now. And so let me ask you, my friend, are you doing what Jesus did here in this text? Are you entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly? Are you trusting in Him? Well, my non-Christian friend, listen closely. If you're an unbeliever, you must trust Christ for salvation. You must trust Christ for your salvation. Do not trust in you in any way, shape, or form. See, you could never deal with your sin on your own. You need one who did it for you. But my Christian friend, you also must trust Christ 
See, just as you trust Christ for your justification, guess what? The gospel is for believers as well. See, you must trust Christ even for your very sanctification. You, you can't live the Christian life on your own. See, you must continually be entrusting your very life and soul to Him who is able to help you and, and to watch out for you, to shepherd you, to oversee your soul. And so the question is, are you doing that? So it doesn't matter which state we're in, whether we're a non-believer, non-Christian, or, or a Christian, we must trust Christ for everything. Without Him, we can do nothing. May God enable us by His grace to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for these precious words from the Apostle Peter. Open our eyes to this truth that we would understand it. So we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that He would be our teacher, that He would be our guide, that He would relate these words to our very hearts, that we would understand them uh, and be blessed by them and know how to use them in our in our lives on a daily basis. Uh, even if we are not a servant or employee, I pray that these words would be useful to everyone here. And anybody who hears this message would would be helped by this. So apply it to our lives so that we would know how to please you. May we understand the proper motive here is to please you, to glorify you in, in everything, including our very work. May it please you. And those who, who might be masters, may they understand their responsibility as well. They are to be a good and gentle master, one who is reasonable, one who is just. Would you cause them to be that kind of a master? Those of us who are employees, may we be ones that, that understand this and may we submit and subject ourselves even to the unjust masters of our lives and, and do it for your honor and glory, pleasing you in the process. So may we as go through life, no matter which state we're in, may we look to the perfect example, look to Christ, who He is, what He's already done, is the perfect model, the perfect example. May we trace our life on Him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.